0: Hi, this is Lynn Rotten from the House of Literature. I have a short message for all of you listeners. While we are thrilled to have made this podcast with Lynn Ullmann and so proud and happy with all the great interviews she has done so far, she's also a writer and she has a novel to finish. So Lind Ullmann will be taking a break from the podcast to figure out how to proceed with her half-finished novel. But don't worry, that doesn't mean that the podcast is taking a break. We will keep the literary conversation going with wonderful international guests. And to keep with the core of this podcast, which is Writers Talking to Writers, we and Lynn Ullmann have found three great guest moderators for the coming episodes. In this episode, you will meet the Norwegian author, Ivan Hofstad-Evimo, in conversation with the Canadian poet, Moes Durani. You can read more about Ivan and the two other guest moderators in our show notes. Stay safe and let the world in for our podcast. And now, back to the podcast.
1: I think poetry, I think part of poetry or one aspect of it is clarity with language. And I think when language becomes clear and you avoid the slogans and buzzwords and euphemisms and you can actually get thoughts to a very distilled place, I think it becomes easier to see what's right and what's wrong and to, and to kind of have a, an ethical understanding of actions that are happening in the world.
2: You just heard the voice of the Canadian author and artist Moas Surani, who is my guest on this episode of How to Proceed. In this episode, he talks about finding ways of using language to connect to the world, a language without sentimentality. He also talks about the violence of language, about identity, and the distance between where we are and where we belong. He also talks about becoming a father, and he talks about happiness. And as you might hear, I'm not Lynn Ullmann, who created this podcast together with the House of Literature. My name is Evin Hofsta evjemo one of the guest moderators in this season. And i'm so glad to be talking today with moes about reading and writing art and creativity and the world we live in right now in the historic year 2020. moes zirani is a canadian artist award-winning poet and short story writer his work whether it is his writing or his performance art spans many genres and forms zirani has published four critically acclaimed poetry collections Reticent Bodies, Floating Life, Operations and his latest book Other Rivers in Your Poems real, from 2019. His writings are lyrical meditations and criticisms on a wide range of political, social and cultural moments, movements and collisions. He locates the small life we live in but also reaches for the world, the global. In the 134-page-long poem, Operations, he is listing the names of military operations conducted by United Nations member states from 1946 to 2006. As one critic put it, who knew that United Nations was writing a long poem? Surani often managed to find and describe fragments of truth and beauty in the floating world that surrounds us. A day in bed with a girlfriend? sitting beside the shore of a river, laying in the infinity tube. Surani writes beautifully of love, the love you have, the love you wish you had, and love you remember. I dare say that Surani's works gives us, his readers, a better understanding of the world we live in and the bodies we inhabit, that poetic language can be used to mediate the complexities of our times. And I'm so happy and honored that you're joining me today, Moaz Serrani. Welcome to the podcast, Moaz Serrani. Thank you. It's great to have you here uh, or have you here. It's great to have your voice here at least. (laughs) <laughs> at the moment i'm sitting in a studio a five minutes walk from the house of literature in oslo and i can see a microphone i can see helena uh, the technician what do you see around you i'm in
1: toronto canada i'm in uh, the east end of the city and um, i'm sitting in my uh, office on the second floor i'm sitting in front of windows and they face i face south so i can see the sun and i can see backyards, and um, my neighbor has a, a trampoline in his backyard for his son, and there's snow on the bottom of the trampoline. And there's quite a bit of snow on the roofs around me, although the trees have no snow on them.
2: So you have everything you need there. <laughs> How is it with you and the views which surround you? Do you like often write about them, or do they come back in your writing? Or I think I, I tend
1: to... Um, uh, filter things more through my imagination than through sort of what's immediately in front of me. I mean, I'm unlikely to kind of write about this 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 view that I'm sitting at here, but maybe when I'm in a different place and I think back, then some of the details here will be, will be I'll find some emotional resonance to them that is um, helpful in delivering a line or something like that. So I, I'll kind of use that.
2: Yeah. But in the In the former episode, the Indian writer Arundhati Roy said that she reads the biography of Stalin as a way of getting perspective to figure out what the human beings have been through before. I will say like tough times. Um, But what are you reading in these times?
1: I've been reading um, quite a bit of uh, Alice Munro, Canadian writer, um, mainly short story writer. And so there was a, there was a book club and, um, I was invited to join it a couple of months ago and, um, and it's mainly Canadians and some Americans. And, um, we meet each week and we discuss the story we've read and it is, it's been a really nice addition to this lockdown routine. Um, everybody, you know, it's through zoom, but it's there's an interesting diversity of people in the group and, and all their different perspectives. So we've, we've uh, made our way through one book. We're starting our second book in January. And, um, but because we've my, my, one of my best friends is also in the group. Uh, we've enjoyed it so much. We've decided to go back and start from the beginning of her work and read through everything. So we're sort of a few books in, so I'm kind of in Alison Roland, which for the most part is, uh, Western Ontario, so or southwestern Ontario, so probably about two hours outside of Toronto. So I'm kind of in that in that landscape mentally.
2: Yeah. Another writer has been to the show. George Saunders said something I found interesting and, of course, recognizable. Uh, he said something about when he got a smartphone, he got addicted to it, and he noticed that. The depths of his reading changed, and the intensity of the images that came out of reading started being reduced. Um, of course, I can recognize that in myself, but do you have a similar experience?
1: no I don't um, I, I've, I I find it very useful um, I've never been someone who really uses a notebook I kind of I have a pretty good memory, so I rely on that and um, and then when I do Write things down. I've had to use scraps of paper and receipts and things like that. So having a phone is actually is made it much easier because I can kind of write down something when I think of it. Um, and then in terms of reading and concentration and things like that, um, I find that I'm able to connect with more people and be exposed to a lot of different art that I might not be exposed to otherwise. So I, I, I like it. I find it's, um, it's helpful.
2: Yeah. I think it's nice to have, to have writers that can have a, a, like a positive um, a way of using the, this tool. Um, but uh, we lived in strange times for nine months now. And we have been through days where many of us have thought that everything would be fine. We just had to wait. And now we, at least me, are not so sure of the end of it all um so maybe this will be our new life could you say something about how the changing of daily routines when you walk where you walk who you meet and you can't meet anymore also has changed your way of thinking and therefore the way you write
1: um in a way my my life hasn't changed as dramatically as other people's lives just because I did work from home before, and so I still work from home. So for me, the major difference is uh, in the social aspect of my life, which is now sort of telephone or online, you know? Yeah. I think my, my kind of the biggest thing I've had going on is um, my partner and I had a, a baby in in May. She's been the, you know, the main, the main thing here.
2: Could you tell a little bit more about that? Like having a baby in this strange, like, times? I...
1: You know, going into, you know, in the ninth month and thinking about what the delivery would be like, we were concerned about what happens in the hospital and um, what the impact on on the baby could be because at that point, there was so little known about this virus. And then the things that were known were sort of contradictory, like it seemed to affect people in in a variety of different ways. So we were were pretty worried, but um, we went to St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto and they were wonderful. Um, it was so reassuring they did a great job you know we were we were so happy about it and now it's just difficult to see family and friends so some people who would have had a lot of time with Zara have not had as much time
2: with him yeah I have a good friend of mine he got a kid in March and he said the same and um, a kind of melancholy in that too it's my first so
1: I haven't I, I don't have the frame of reference you know I don't know But to compare it to, it's it's been really joyous having her. And um, she's such a funny person. So it's been a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, it is. Reading you also shows an interest in the world. And so many cultures and countries and people are visiting your books. Um, What do you think will be the consequences of people? And in this case, you uh, have to be more home and you can't move as freely as you did before?
1: Um, well, I mean, this doesn't directly relate to, you know, uh, physical mobility. But over the past months, the one thing that I'm, I'm seeing and I'm concerned about is um, the potential for, uh, you know, rising authoritarianism in the world. Hmm. Like, for example, there's, a, there's an app that the government of Canada put out um, and it is, uh, and I have the app and I use it, and it's to help contact tracing. So for example, if someone near you has COVID and you've spent five minutes with them, you'll get an alert saying, you know, go get a test. So it's, it's a very helpful app. It's socially beneficial. Um, everyone in my family and my friends, we all use it. But, you know, there is a potential for that kind of information, that kind of seeding of that privacy to become normalized, not in can not just in Canada but around the world, and um, that coupled with the media is becoming more centralized, and because of that, uh, narratives are kind of becoming more homogenous, um, and um, and it, it makes me worry.
2: I think it's an interesting discussion that which have arisen in many countries after the coronavirus is that the pandemic has shown or become a filter which makes already social differences and hierarchies even more visible. That coronavirus has revealed deep social divisions and that it has shown that things we were suspecting already, that some bodies are valued and some are not. And in Oslo right now, the city I live in, the governing major said that they need to grant money more directly to these groups immigrants, neighborhoods where people are living under the poverty line and has shown to be more disposed for the virus. Uh, But he didn't meet much understanding in the government, mainly governed by the right, uh, but this is the discussion in Norway, and I think it can maybe resonate with in, in the situation in, in Canada. Or
1: I, It seems like it's um, a very similar situation in Canada. Uh, the costs of the pandemic, it's hitting women harder in terms of like employment and responsibilities and things that um, are traditionally regarded as being female duties, so raising kids and homework and things like that. Um, so it's been a very stressful time for, for women in particular um and the other segment is the uh, visible minorities as well um and you can see them in canada in the employment numbers where, where it's something saying that um the employment numbers for men have actually gone up during the, the the pandemic um and for women and visible minorities it's it's gone down so um the suffering is not being doled out equally
2: We need to talk about your beautiful poetry, too. I want to start talking a little bit about The Floating Life, which came out in 2012, which starts like this. Quote, When I'm reading, I feel like life is outside. When I'm outside, I feel life is in books. I can never find life. End quote. And I often feel while reading you, and also reading your latest book, Are the Rivers in Your Poems Real?, that something is a kind of in a constant state of loss or absent. That uh, things that matters just aren't there. Mm. Although I read the poems as way well as documenting this feeling of momentarily love and intensity. And that these things just can't last, but moves away. Like one of the bearing metaphor in your latest book, The River. Mm-hmm. So if, I don't know if that's a question, but that's a, at least a, re- a reflection. What do you think?
1: That's uh, that's a nice way to put it. I haven't, I don't think I've thought about it that way, but I think, um, I think that's, a, I think that's a fair way to put it because I think the thing is, is when I'm writing, you know, in a sense, that's, that's all I'm doing. And so when you're writing, you're actually far from everything else. Mm. You can, you can connect with other things through the, through the language and through the thoughts and the, um, and what you're, what you're going through emotionally, but you actually, when you're writing, you don't have direct contact with you know, what you're writing about. Or I don't.
2: Do you have a feeling of, or an idea of who you're talking to while you're writing?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. And it varies. I think different, um, with different pieces, it's different people I'm talking to. And, it's the, and that ends up informing the, the tone and the, and the color of it.
2: Another thing that struck me while reading was also the kind of various poetic terrain you invite the reader to be in. It felt like an open voice, to put it that way, that so many different things could happen. In one poem, you're using the whole toolbox of poetry and emotion, daring to think like expansively and dig deep, while in other poems, you work more as a conceptual writer boiling down the message. For example, structuring a poem around dates and phone numbers. Um, why does this poetic strategy of boiling down interest you, in the more conceptual writing also?
1: I think sometimes I get um, I get skeptical about the rhetoric of poetry, and I want to kind of work artistically, but without that rhetoric. Mm. The poem that I think you're referring to is "Happiness." It was I wrote that one October. I remember it, and um, I just remember that I was feeling so good that month hmm. and I was trying to figure out why and what was behind it and what were, what was the source of it. And I realized that it was, um, it was eight people. So I wrote a poem called happiness, but I didn't want to write it in a prescriptive way, you know, that in a way that someone like maybe like Tennyson or Longfellow might write a poem, you know? Hmm. Um, and I ended up writing eight phone numbers and part of it is that I want I want readers to be brave. I want them to call up the numbers and talk um, because these people have something to say that's that's worthwhile. So that poem we actually ended up, um, so University of Toronto, University of Toronto is an interesting place. They've had some problems with, um, they usually score pretty low in terms of um, student happiness. There's a problem with loneliness and a problem with uh, depression. And I think a big part of it is because there are so many foreign students. So come here and they don't have a a strong network. So, um, I was invited to go and give a performance there. And I ended up bringing that poem happiness, the phone numbers. And we were in a classroom and we kind of huddled around. I put my phone on speaker and we all huddled up and we called two of the numbers. Mm -hmm. And, um, we just asked, we had a conversation about happiness and some of the students asked questions too about, you know, what is happiness? How did you find it? So one, one person kind of was, ended up talking about the American poet, David Anton. And David Anton's conception of happiness is sort of working, working in, uh, in a process to be in sync with someone else. So you might never get in sync with somebody else, but it's the, it's the process of kind of matching your rhythm to their rhythm that is important. And the person that was on the phone talking about this ended up also talking about someone they were dating and saying how he was very aware of how him and the person he was dating, they walk in different rhythm. And he said, we just can never sync up when we're walking. And uh, so he says he ends up kind of having to take a couple of catch-up steps. Then he falls behind and he takes a couple of catch-up steps. And um, um, it was it was a funny it was a funny connection to to the David Anton, a funny embodiment of that. Hmm.
2: In another poem, you you also mentioned like like it's it's it titled "Every Day I Was in Love," and uh, it's a it's a fun poem because you you. You understand the idea behind it? Well, so
1: that's a, it's, a, it's a strange poem in a way. It's called
2: um, Every Day I Was In Love
1: and then the, in brackets, even though I didn't say so. So that poem, I, um, I wrote that poem when things were becoming serious with the person I've ended up marrying, Liz. But <laughs> mm-hmm. the poem isn't really about Liz. It's about somebody before her, Hmm. but we were at a point in, I was at a point in the relationship with Liz where we were getting serious and things were going really well, but um, for some reason I was inhibited and I hadn't kind of, I hadn't said those words. So I'm playing on a soccer team and I was out with the soccer team one time and someone on the team was giving me a really hard time for not having said that and kind of saying like, let's, you know, just, just get over it, just say it. And, um, so we ended up, Liz and I ended up going to a concert one night and then we got home, we got back to my place and I think she was feeling really big and she was bragging and she was the one actually who said kind of, you love me. And I, and I said, yes, I do. Um, but that whole kind of, all of that made me think about, you know, I didn't know why, why I was kind of delayed in saying it and why I hadn't said it previously, um, to someone who I think I owed it to. Um, so that, that poem comes out of, comes out of that experience.
2: Yeah. Could you, do you have the book there? Sure.
1: So this is, uh, every day I was in love, even though I didn't say so. Sunday, April 20th, 2014.
3: Monday, April 21st, 2014. Tuesday, April 22nd, 2014 wednesday april 23rd 2014 thursday april 24th 2014
1: friday april 25th 2014 and the poem ends up going until monday september 22nd 2014
2: yeah In the interview, the essayist and writer Valeria Lucielli says that she likes to read books that leads her to books, and uh, you also like use writers' quotes and fragments of poems, use parts of longer parts of book, without really connecting it like explicitly. Mm. It's more like the fragments are left alone to shine for themselves, and then that's also make make you think about the collage and uh, as a kind of strategy or could you say something about how you think about intertextuality in your work
1: yeah i think i think sometimes i'll use a bit of intertextuality to um subtly kind of direct the reader to to what i'm to what i'm thinking um so there'll be either it can either it can help with an atmosphere or it can give a there's a there's a connection that if you if you kind of know the You know, the quote, it will kind of bring another dimension to the, to the poem, like the Raymond Carver that opens up the first poem in Are the Rivers in Your Poems Real. um, He says very simply, the epigraph is from a poem of his called Late Fragment. And he says, and did you get what you wanted from this life? So that for me is right to the center of the question that that poem is asking. Hmm.
2: I also think it's something with the voice, and uh, if you if you are talking about other rivers in your poems, real. it's a voice that like seeks a perspective which r- relates to identity of like, to put it simple, who I am and where is my home and you know, do I own my own language? Um, and this uh, becomes clear when I read uh, a poem like "Near and Fear," which I hope you can. Uh, Read for us here. Sure. So
1: near far is also in um, the poetry book by the Rivers and your Poems Real, and I think of it as a it's a it's a self portrait, but it's you know it's as you'll see it's it's kind of a numerical self portrait. Um, there's a kind of a a lot of measurements. Um, so this is called near far from yesterday. It is twelve hours and five minutes. To tomorrow, it is 11 hours and 54 minutes. I'm 20 kilometers from my origin, 12,625 kilometers from my mother's origin, and 11,931 kilometers from my
3: father's. From this city window, the farthest I can see is about one kilometer. The nearest cloud is three kilometers my last dream it's been six hours my next date is uncertain the day of my likely death is 44 years away my next flight is in 34 days my last argument was two days ago
1: the last good conversation was one day ago and the last time i sang
2: was five minutes ago Maybe a silly question, but why did you measure these things?
1: I think that I was looking for, I wanted to do a self-portrait, but I wanted to sort of combine that with a like a mapping element. I didn't want to just, you know, write descriptive sentences um, about, you know, from the inside looking out, but to actually try to, I don't know, almost rationalize it with those kinds of, those kinds of measurements, like where, where I am, where I am in relation to my parents and their birthplaces and, and even where I am temporally between sleep and flights and singing and conversations and things like that. I think all of that ends up giving a portrait of a very specific moment.
2: So where are your parents from?
1: My parents are, they're both from Kenya.
2: And you've been traveling in Kenya? You've been there a couple of times or?
1: I've I've been there once. Yes. It was, it was really nice. Yeah. And I kind of took the train across from, Nairobi to Kisumu, which is where my dad is from. And then I went out to the, the coast where my mom is from, Mombasa. And, uh, and then went over to Tanzania and I visited my dad's old best friend who still lives in, uh, in, uh, in the capital there. So it was, it was wonderful.
2: Moa Sarani, you're also working as an artist, often in collaboration with others. Could you say something about how that connect to your writing when you feel that a project or an idea push out of literature and need a different format?
1: So the main collaborative work I do is with a uh, Toronto-based artist, Nina Leo. So we we met while I was working on a project called Operations. And that project is, um, it's a research-based project. And I was looking up all the names of military operations. I was trying to see Uh, how different countries name their military operations and if there are patterns to that to that language and to that rhetoric. So uh, Nina and I were friends and we we were talking and she was kind of it was it was it was a difficult process working on that book because a lot of the a lot of the reading and a lot of the research I was doing was was pretty grim. Hmm. So we would meet and talk and um And I got very interested as I was working on that project, I got interested in, in names and how powerful names are and sort of, and the role names can play in narratives. Mm -hmm. And we were sitting one night and I, and I kind of was, we were talking and I was saying that I wish that there was a way to refer to say, for example, Hiroshima without invoking all of the baggage that that name carries in our General knowledge. And that became the basis for a project that we've been working on for a few years now called Heresies. And the idea for that project is um, instead of using the name Hiroshima, what we've what we did was we worked with a perfumer based in Hiroshima. And she made a perfume that expresses her subjective experience of living in that city. So instead of the, you know, the general knowledge name that carries all of the the history with it, you get a scent instead. And um, so we've exhibited that and you can go into the gallery and take the lid off the bottle and smell it. And you get her very personal statement about her life in that place. I think with that, it was a question that I had with, you know, with Hiroshima was, as a question that couldn't be solved or i couldn't find a way to solve it with language so we needed a different a different mode to work in and scent ended up providing that and scent of course is very is very personal it's very experiential and very subjective so it's not it can't be controlled in the same way that that language can
2: hmm. i also want to talk a little bit more about what you said about names um because the the project operations like you said, it's like really about names um, or code names. Um, the title operation is that's the only on the English side of it. It also has, has the word operation repeated in each of the United Nations six official languages: Arabic, Spanish, French, English, Chinese, and Russian. Um, could you could you say more about these kind of names, um, could you talk a little bit more about the connections you found between war, language, and like some extent poetry? It was a really interesting
1: project and it ended up taking much longer than I thought. There are many more operation names than I, than I knew or guessed. So it works out that from the end of the Second World War until uh, present day, there's somewhere on the planet as a military operation every five days. And I was also surprised by how they're named. When I started, I thought that the names would kind of follow the um, the stereotype of sports teams. So it would be a lot of aggressive animals, you know? Um, And there are some of that. There are a lot of eagles, and um, eagles in particular recur. But in large part, the two names that end up recurring most frequently are... Morning light or dawn, like references to dawn and sunrise, solar sunrise, first light, all the different, all the different kind of permutations, the different ways you can say dawn. So that, and then uh, cleanliness. So uh, clean house, you know, restore order, um, allusions to purity, and then kind of just outright names that involve cleaning. So total cleaning, for example. and. Um, I was surprised by that but then as i was working it began to make sense because you know the countries that that name their military operations they also have to be perceived as being virtuous actors so aggressive names won't do you know aggression isn't virtuous so um i think these kinds of names that are almost lightly religious you know morning light uh they end up creating a a sense of virtue so that the citizens and the media, when they're thinking about these names, it can kind of try to try to limit their 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 feeling of anger or betrayal with their government.
2: Yeah, and of course this is uh, this is a book, and it came out in two thousand and sixteen. Yes, could you could you read a little bit from operations for us?
1: Sure. So I wrote a an introduction to the book. So why don't I start just reading a. I'll, I'll read a short a short part of the introduction perfect what i found is that no word is exempt from connoting violence this poem makes tulip and grasshopper
3: equal to killer and bonebreaker.
1: no word is inherently innocent beautiful or good Also preoccupying me as this poem lengthened was Walter Lippmann's explanation for how to measure the health of a democracy. He wrote that democratic health is related to the vitality of the media and the education of citizens. These three factors strengthen or decay together. It follows then that operation names that obfuscate their intentions depress the robustness of democracies. They conceal intention, delay understanding, and in place of thoughtful engagement, they appeal to emotions or valor. But if a citizen's personal values match those of the military operations conducted by their country, an operation ought to be named with perfect candor. This lack of candor and the propensity for euphemisms exposes a chasm between personal and national values. The bits of language that follow document this gap so this is from operations there are two there are two quotes that open the book so i'll read those the first is from you know the one of the great war poems the iliad Hmm. so book two homer says and now O muses dwellers in the mansions of olympus tell me for you are goddesses and are in all places so that you see all things while we know nothing
3: but by report. And the second quote that opens the book is from the United Nations. It's from their charter. The purpose of the
1: United Nations are to develop friendly relations among nations based on respect for the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples, and to take other appropriate measures to strengthen universal peace. So I'll read from 1999 and some of the names aren't in English. So what I'll do is I'll read the, um, I'll read the name in the, in the original language of the country
3: conducting the operation. And then I'll, I'll, I'll say the translation. So this is 1999. Sakas Wibawa, which is authority. Preamble. Beware of the Dagger, Battle Cry, Module, Allied Force, which became known as Noble Anvil, and the name got changed again to Merciful Angel, Echo, Kinetic, Total Cleansing, Victory, Sword, Augmentation, Joint Guardian, Kosovo Force, Concord, Faber, Beware of the Dagger, Two, Torrent, Avid Response, Spitfire. You can stabilize. warden, crocodile, desert spring, rapid guardian, reptile, fundamental response, and abacus.
2: Hmm. When you were working with that, this project did you? just found you of course found the names but did your research around what really happened or could you tell me a little bit more about the research behind this project yeah yeah so um
1: i when i when i realized i needed to be more methodical i i kind of went country by country and i researched their military history and um the different conflicts they were involved in Hmm. and um and uh there were there many tangents that i that i got caught up in because it was it, it was so fascinating everything every i found everything just so even something small like um there's a a french operation called uh, papillon butterfly
3: hmm.
1: and um so I, when i saw that i i i couldn't i was like why why would a military operation be called butterfly so um I looked it up and what I found was that, um, it was calling it butterfly was an instruction to the people involved in the mission, because I guess the, uh, the lifespan of a butterfly is 24 hours. So the instruction to those carrying out the mission was, um, um, and I believe it was in Central African Republic. It was, um, we're going, uh, and 24 hours and then done. So that that name ended up carrying the the parameters of the mission.
2: Hmm. I was thinking about how uh, the oil industry in Norway are working. Uh, you have the oil platforms which have name after famous artists and scientists through the history. But I think they really want to want people to associate the oil industry with the Norwegian culture, and of course that will make it easier for them to to keep on doing what they're doing. So. Uh, I was also thinking that the naming itself hides a pretty dirty agenda. So the names is always hiding something. They're, 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 they mean something, and I think that operations is a like a very strong reminder of that.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, one of the one of the other aspects about it that I found fascinating was when a when a a name initially doesn't work and um, there's some media outcry. Um, and then the name has to be changed. So The military operation is not changed, but the name has to change. So for example, uh, uh, there was, a, uh, an, an, operation in Zimbabwe by Robert Mugabe and that operation, the name of it was called, uh, clear out rubbish.
3: Hmm.
1: And that operation, it was clearing out a slum. And so once that name clear out rubbish came out, people were, people just said, this is, you can't do that. You can't. You know this is terrible. Um, so they didn't change the operation; they t- they just changed the name of it to mm-hmm. restore order. Mm-hmm. And s- in a similar way, there's a, a name change. Uh, the Americans had to change a name once. There's their operation initially. The the one where they were going to go into Iraq was um, it was called Infinite Justice. And I was in school then. I was an undergrad then, and I remember this really well. And There was a huge reaction to that name because people felt that that was, it was too arrogant a name and that it's not on humans to give out an infinite amount of justice. That is, you know, if anything, that is for a God to do. So they changed the name to Enduring Freedom, which, you know, who, who would be against Freedom Enduring? Hmm.
2: one of the ritual of this podcast the former guest writer ask a question to the present guest and uh, Arundati Roy has a rather short but beautiful question for you which I will now read when was the first time you were deeply wounded did your river heal you
1: I don't think I dwell too much on, on times I was hurt um, and when I do, it's usually just to see the pressures that someone is caught up in that caused you know whatever it was and um and then once I see those pressures i can I can let it go i do i'm more likely and I do remember those times when i've when I have heard people um and even little things like jokes that missed the mark or you know a comment that landed wrong, but that happens i don't know i don't I don't look for Um, my writing to have a like a personally healing end when i when i write i tend to write in order to have an enhanced understanding of something or um or offer a new energy or put words together in a way where there's a charge to the language and a charge that carries a piece of life with it
2: Hmm. but i'm also interested in that the personal room here personal conversation or dialogue you have with yourself and your own history in in some way do you feel that you are in a modus of attack or do you think you defend something when you're writing that's a kind of abstract question but
1: i think it's it's different with different pieces um i think i think with some poems especially the the political poems i um i'm writing because i feel like my point of view and, and and the other people who have my point of view, I feel like our, what we're saying isn't getting adequately heard and isn't getting enacted. So I'm writing with that kind of energy, you know? Um, I think, I think otherwise, I think with lyric poetry, it's often with a, a sense of, of opening up or adventure.
2: Mm. The last poem in the, collection is called day and for me it has kind of different tuning kind of the tone and the poem is really different and when you compare it to the other the rest of the book it's almost like it sounds the sound it's like more almost aggressively and it sounds like more a, as a call for writers kind of remember this and uh, be careful what you what you do with language is anger the right word, or how do you put it?
1: Um, yeah, anger or maybe frustration. So, that poem, Day, is um, uh, it was one, day, it was just one day I was reading the newspaper and um, I was looking at all of the stories there and um, all the the obviousness of the injustice of, of things. Hmm. And there's a quote by Ker Vonnegut, and he says. I mean, this is a paraphrase of it, so he, he's put it more eloquently, but he says something along the lines of um, writers need to acknowledge the role that they have had in glorifying war and in valorizing violence. And so I'm, I, li- I like the spirit of that quote, and I think it's important to, to, to undo that, to, to deconstruct some of the valor, to deconstruct some of the, the appeal of like, what i want to put in quotes is like the noble fight i think that that kind of attitude is very destructive so that's that's sort of the energy i was writing
2: that poem with Hmm. i also saw that in an early interview uh, which came out around your debut uh, which i really liked you said that quote i don't think a writer has an obligation to be a public intellectual but then i think if something happens such as the Iraq war, you should speak up. otherwise, the nice left wing writing just looks like an attempt to be hip. When that war began, there were silence in the editorial pages, like nothing from writers. I looked at my sh- shelf and thought, "Why had I paid all this money for these books written by these lefties?" And quote, "Do you mean this? Did it mean the same today? or do you f- have the same?" Yeah. Get the same feelings yeah. looking at your bookshelf today. I I do. I think. Um, well, that that Iraq
1: War was. It hit me very hard. Um, I was I was pretty surprised by it. As the run up to the war was happening and all of the articles were coming out, it was. You know, if you can go back and remember it, there were so many shifting reasons for it, and the, all of the shifting reasons were contradictory, and that didn't seem to matter, and. Even the New York Times was kind of behind in pushing that war, even though there were valid reasons to, to be very suspicious about the intelligence they were, they were publishing and, and spreading around. So it was, it was really frustrating. And you can see now when it's, I think it's about half a million, half a million Iraqis died because of that. Um, and, and so much disorder, so much destruction. It was really difficult to, to watch all of that happen and be, you know, an undergrad and be 22 or so and 21 or whatever I was then. And I um, feel like, how, how can this happen? How, how is this going ahead? This should be, we should be able to stop this is what I felt and somehow no one was able to stop it. And I think I was, I was frustrated.
2: Can you say something about how poetry can like create this kind of attention and what kind of role the, poetry can have addressing these kind of questions and problems? I think
1: poetry, I think part of poetry or one aspect of it is clarity with language. And I think when language becomes clear and you avoid the slogans and buzzwords and euphemisms, and you can actually get thoughts to a very distilled place, I think it becomes easier to see what's right and what's wrong and and to kind of have a, an ethical understanding of actions that are happening in the world. That is something that poetry can do well. It's something that I, I hope Operations was able to do, was to make people aware of how words can um, preemptively frame a narrative and preemptively create buy-in and compliance from citizens. And I, I, I do, I'm very hopeful about poetry and about writing and about art for kind of being able to help
2: those things that's a beautiful way of putting it thank you i want to also talk about the episode earlier on with mary rueful where she talks about fear regarding what we already talked about uh, that fear is something that makes action impossible and she says that to keep on living we have to decide and of course if we are in fear we can't write we'll lose our language and to quote one of the things she said, if one can overcome fear, everything changes. If you can overcome your fear of death, then the other things you're afraid of don't matter so much anymore. What do you fear today? Well, I mean, the, <laughs> the, fears,
1: the fears that come to mind for me are, are they're, they're very real things. Um, it's not, they're not esoteric. so. Um, You know, first fear I can think of is racism. My second fear is uh, just last summer, my my partner and I were involved in a car accident and we were driving and a truck hit us. And after that, for quite some time, I was afraid of driving on highways where there's, you know, there isn't a divider between the oncoming traffic. I'm afraid of authoritarianism. You know, after, after the 2016 American election, um, even though we're in Toronto and in Canada and we you know, are somewhat removed and we have our own government, there was a tremendous sadness in Toronto because of that election. Um, I fear running out of time and not being able to do everything that I want to do. I used to be afraid of, of swimming because I wasn't a good swimmer. But a few years ago, I took some adult swim classes and I feel more comfortable now. <laughs> and my last report card for that swim class that was written, I think, by like a 17-year-old said that I had the makings of an excellent swimmer. Um, sometimes I'm afraid of cooking for people because I'm not a very good cook. I cook very simply um what do you make what are you best at i like italian food i cook i can i can do that i can do that pretty nicely <laughs> um my 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 partner is a tremendous cook though so she can kind of improvise every anything and it tastes fantastic so it's nice it's tough to it's tough to be in that shadow
2: yeah i would like you to like for the end of this conversation that you read uh the poem infinity which is not in the book yet but kind of resonates a lot of the things we've talked about and it's a beautiful text and a beautiful poem and it was really nice talking to you so um thank you
1: sure and before i read that i just want to say thank you thank you for you and, and for the house in in norway i really appreciate this and it's and i've enjoyed it this is a, a poem called infinity it's my most recent poem i
3: think i wrote it uh, in. Just this, in the summertime. Infinity. I haven't been married so long. Not even a year. We have a
1: newborn. Our wedding was small at a friend's place that overlooks the city. Nina, Alex, and I arranged the tables and dishes. Another friend cooked for us. My wife ordered the flowers she wanted, and these arrived white and green. Pale, her friend said. My wife cried to me over this friend, how she felt she couldn't share things with her anymore. We had a honeymoon in Montreal, champagne on the train and in bed and at dinner, and the guilt later when we realized she
3: was already a couple days pregnant. Last summer, we were in an accident. We were driving, and the truck was out
1: of control. And the trailer came around a bend and into our lane. My wife pulled our car as far over as she could. She could have gone further, in fact. But it would have put a cement block between my legs. So she pulled over as far as she could.
3: And as she puts it, she ate it. The truck tore through her side of the car. I held her on the street after, her head in my lap. The country road was
1: warm under me and her arm was bleeding and we were covered in blood and I was
3: gray with shatterproof glass. I kept telling her I wanted to marry her. It was the first thing I said when I opened my eyes
1: and I said it again as she opened her eyes and wriggled her toes. A month later, there was a lot of champagne at the wedding, and the mood was euphoric. In the photos, my wife's right arm is never seen. In the fall, I had a book come out. I got a box of them before the publication day, and she read it through before I came home. And sometime later, she said that I wouldn't be able to write
3: like that anymore. No one will want to read a poem
0: about a wife. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Tune in for our next episode of How to Proceed, where you will meet the German writer Jenny Erpenbeck. And please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Moas and Ibin talked about.